More than any of these other requests right now, Father, we lift up to you your will, asking that your will would be accomplished. And you said that that's the thing we're supposed to put first. So as Jesus modeled for us, we, we declare holy is your name and that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. That's what we're looking for, Father, for your will to be accomplished here on earth just as it is in heaven. God, in keeping with that, we come before you with your word. Our Bibles are open and our hearts are open. I ask that you help our minds to be fully present, that we not be distracted by the things going on later today or the things that happened this morning, but rather that we'd be fully present in the moment, ready to learn from you. So God, we ask that you would teach us through the work of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So let me take you back to uh, the book of John. And uh, if you're new to New Hope, you may not know that we've been working our way through the book of John. We finished chapter 14 last week, which is a big woo-hoo, glad to be there. Okay, so now we're into chapter 15 this morning. Where we left off last week, we see that Jesus was announcing that he saw Satan on the march. He saw Satan coming. And so this is where we left off in verse 30. He said, the ruler of the world is coming, he's speaking of Satan, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up and let us go from here. So Jesus saw Satan on the move, putting his forces into place, and he said, let's leave. So they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. That verse ends the time in the uh, the upper room, the Last Supper. They leave the room and start heading to the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is at. Now, what we look at here in chapter 15 is a a dialogue, a one-way dialogue from Jesus speaking directly to us. And we don't understand how it fits into the chronology. Is it because they're on their way to the valley at the Garden of Gethsemane that he takes this time, it's a long walk, to talk to them? Or is it when they get to the garden? We really don't know. We're not told. What we do know is that there's a huge brushstroke here. We've been talking about this series, the portrait, being a blank canvas. And every time that God reveals himself to us and shows his nature and character, it's another brushstroke on the canvas. You're going to see a couple really huge brushstrokes this morning. And Jesus is the teacher. I'm merely the commentator. These are his words that we're looking at. He's speaking very directly. So what we want to be very careful to do is to keep the passage in context. When I'm in Bible college, our professors always said, be careful to keep the text in context. So let's look at what the context is. Who's being addressed here? Who is he speaking to? What's the connection of this passage that we're looking at in chapter 15? Why are they being addressed this way? And what's the central topic? Those are all questions you should ask yourself when you open up a passage of Scripture. So we look at this passage and we'd say, well, it's the 11. Judas is already gone. We saw a couple weeks ago that Satan entered into Judas. He's being Satan-controlled. He's left. And the 11 who are loyal to Jesus are still with him, and they follow him out to the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we understand he's not speaking to unsaved people. He's not speaking to a mixed room. He's speaking to believers. Well, let's see what he has to say in verse 1 of John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now, Jesus is not introducing something brand new to them that they've never heard before. He's coming straight forward with an image that's ancient, and it's as ancient as the Old Testament because God called Israel his vine or his vineyard that he planted them. 
And you constantly see God referring to Israel as his vineyard in the Old Testament. It's very familiar symbolism. As a matter of fact, on the temple itself, Herod's temple when it was built, they incorporated gold vines into the doorways of the temple to remind them that they were the vineyard of God. But here we see Jesus saying, I am the true vine. Now let's look at an example from the Old Testament in which God speaks of the vineyard. This comes from Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? See, if ever a nation had everything it needed to succeed and be successful, it's Israel. And God longed for fruit, good fruit, from Israel, but they're constantly producing rotten fruit. And every time you see God referring to them as his vineyard, it's always in a sense of chastisement when you look in the Old Testament. So Jesus is at the very end of his life, and he makes a statement that's very familiar to the disciples. He says, guys, I'm the true vine. Well, they understood what that meant. If there's a true vine, it must mean there's a false vine. What's the false vine? It's Israel. At this stage in their history, they've rejected God's plan. They've rejected Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine in contrast to the rotten vine. I'm bringing forth good fruit. And my father is the vine dresser. Oh, what is that referring to? Well, let's, before we get into who the father is and what that means for him to be the vine dresser, let me ask you a question. I want you to ponder as we're working through this text this morning. Can you be a believer in Jesus Christ and not produce fruit? Because what we're going to be talking about this morning is what does it look like to have the fruit of Christ in your life? Can you be a believer in Jesus Christ and bear no fruit whatsoever? I know many little fruit Christians. There are some who produce blueberries and there's some who produce watermelons. Okay, so there's a huge spectrum in God's church. I don't know where you feel that you fit into the, that spectrum, but Jesus says this in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And notice he says, in me. You want to be very careful about that clause, every branch in me. And that makes a very, very difficult text here. Because people immediately, when they read that, say, whoa, is this saying Christians can lose their salvation? Can you fall out of standing with God and lose your eternal security in Christ? Well, before we focus on that, look at the last part. He says that he will prune the branches. So here's a guarantee for you. God will prune you. And I want to explain what that means. He will prune you in some fashion at different stages in your life. And it can be really, really painful. Really just a traumatic time in your life. I know because I've been there. I'm sure many of you have as well, and you can be very much in a position where you associate yourself with that statement. I know what it is to be pruned. So here's the guarantee. God will prune you at different times in your life. Why does he do that? Well, first of all, let's go back to where we were at a few weeks ago. It actually probably seems like a year ago to you, but let's go back to John chapter 8. Jesus made this statement, John chapter 8 and verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now that means that there are individuals who belong to Jesus that don't continue in his word. And he's saying, if you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine. But here's the truth. Those who love Christ, those who are believers in Jesus, do not always obey, right? 
We don't always fully abide in Christ. Can you agree with that statement? Okay, I'm, I'm right there with you. We don't always fulfill God's purposes. We don't always abide fully in Christ. But because he wants us to produce fruit, he wants us to be productive spiritually, the father gets out his pruning shears and he begins working on your life. Now, pruning is a really essential part of keeping a vineyard. I watched my grandfather and my uncles do this as a young man growing up, as a child growing up. My grandfather had a a small vineyard in his yard. My parents had one in their yard. My uncles had one in their yard. And we all lived in this little square block section. Uh, Some people referred to it as Kring Corners because there were so many of my relatives living in that area. But each of us, my relatives, had a vineyard in our yard, small as it was. And I watched them at various times of the year. Early in the spring, before the leaves would come out on the vine, my grandfather would go out and begin pruning his vines. Uh, At that point, the very first pruning, he would be looking for the dead branches. And he would cut them off, but not too close to the live part of the vine so he wouldn't damage it. He wouldn't want it to bleed out and all the sap to run out of the vine. So he would just cut the dead part off so that it wouldn't damage the vine. But later on, in the later part of the spring and the early summer, when he could see where the small clusters of grapes were beginning to grow, he would go back in for a second pruning, sometimes to cut off old dead flowers, but other times to cut off small clusters of grapes where there were too many grapes growing closely together because those grapes would hinder the other grapes on the vine And they wouldn't be able to produce a huge bounty, really big, juicy grapes, the kind that my mom used to make homemade jelly with. Mm Mmm, I can tell you, it was good too. My mom loved to make homemade jelly for us, and that's why my relatives grew grapes. And so I got to watch them pruning and taking these vines and clipping them off. Now, we understand that imagery because it's a really important part of keeping a vineyard, but Jesus uses a difficult phrase here in verse 2. He uses the phrase, he takes away. Now, he's already said, these branches are in me, but then he says in verse 2, he takes some away. Now, let's be familiar with what this phrase is. It'll help us as we're working through this text about individuals, especially as it talks about some branches being thrown in the fire. The word, Greek word that's used here is a rio, and it means to lift up, all right? So when Jesus says he takes away, he, a rio, he takes up or he removes. That's the problem. And you can't find too many theologians who agree on this verse because it has a double meaning. He takes away, meaning he lifts up and he might tie it to another part of the vine because it's been growing on the ground and it's not producing anything or he completely removes it. Well, we'll unfold it and unpack it here in a little bit so you can see what he's really talking about. But here's what we understand. The Father prunes branches in our life. He prunes the branches that we are by removing anything that can ultimately sap our future productivity in him. Anything that might obstruct us from being fully productive for his vine. And that's why he gets the pruning shears out. And that involves cutting away some things. Cutting away some things that might limit your righteousness in him. And it might come in the form of discipline. It might come in the form of suffering. For some, it might come in the form of persecution. 
I know some in our church who are working in settings in their office or in their job site where they are a witness for Christ and they feel persecuted in that environment because people around them know that they're Christians and they pick on them. They go after them and they feel that sense of persecution. Others feel that in their family setting because they have a a social circle, a relational circle where they might be the only believer and they feel a sense of persecution. Others feel a sense of suffering simply because God is pruning them. Now, here's the truth. Many Christians desire for God to make them more fruitful. We want to be producers, but they don't want the pruning process that goes with it because it hurts. It is really painful, and I've been through it. So I've been to the point where I've gone to my knees, literally, and said to God, what do you want to teach me through this? Because it hurts so bad. But ultimately, you get to the point where you're abandoning your ways, your desires, and you come before the Father and say, okay, I know there's a bigger purpose going on here. I'm not sure what it is, but will you show me? Will you, will you teach me? I want to lean into your wisdom, Father, because there's a reason you're pruning me. Are you undergoing some of that this morning? Are you feeling that chastening or maybe that pruning, a very painful process? Let me remind you of Hebrews 12. I'm going to show it to you up on the screen, but Scripture very specifically speaks to this issue. Hebrews 12.7 says this, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now Jesus said when someone is not bearing fruit... He takes that one away. He says it again in verse 6, the word rio. Why does that happen, first of all? Because they're detrimental to the advancement of the kingdom. There's vines that have branches, and those branches stop God's kingdom from advancing. Jesus said, my church will prevail and the gates of hell will not stand against it. But there can be vines that have branches that get in the way. And so we're told that some of those are removed. I'm going to show you an example of that in just a minute because they are detrimental. Now, I want to be very clear before we get to this. Scripture is not inconsistent with itself. And Jesus promised us he will not cast out any true disciples. Those who belong to him belong to him for eternity. Let me remind you that from John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. But when he says every branch in me, that must mean there's branches that are part of the vineyard that are not in him. So if I'm one of the 11, and I'm walking away from the upper room, and I've just had this dinner with Jesus, he's washed the feet, and there's only 11 of us present now, my mind immediately goes to Judas. Judas was a branch that was part of the vine who was not in Jesus. 
And he looked just like the rest. As a matter of fact, if you remember in verse 22 of chapter 13, when we were looking at this a few weeks ago, when Jesus said, there's one of you that's going to betray me, they started looking around the room at a loss, Scripture says, to know who he was talking about. They couldn't put the pieces together because he was so good at looking like all the other branches. But Jesus says, these branches that are in me, those are the ones that the Father cares for and he takes care of. So Judas would be a false branch. Now there's a play on words here in this verse. It's really important to get down in your thinking so that you understand this. First he says he lifts some up or takes them away, the word areo, and he trims others. He trims the fruit-bearing branches. Now we already said Scripture does not contradict itself. Here's what you need to be reminded of. Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We know that if we're believers in Jesus, we're there for eternity. And we know that Jesus is not addressing a mixed audience. It's not a mix of believers and non-believers. He's speaking to the eleven who are believers. Here's the tendency and the temptation in the Christian life to take these really hard verses like the Father taking some away and disciplining them and apply it to other people. To take these really pointed warnings and say, well, that's that person over there. And it totally loses its effect on ourselves. If it is believers in view here that he's speaking to and if the taking away is not perishing to eternity, meaning to hell, what's the meaning here? What's really going on? Well, let me take you to the Greek language because there's a tense in the verb that you need to understand to know what Jesus is talking about. I want you to see the literal translation. And you might have it in your NASB, New American Standard Version of the Bible. But this is the way it says it. Every branch in me not bearing fruit is the literal translation. And here's what it means in the Greek language. It's not a branch which never bore fruit. It's one that is no longer bearing fruit. Now, as a young man growing up with relatives that had vineyards, I understand there's three things that cause a vineyard to stop producing grapes, or specifically a vine and the branches on the vine. The first one is when it begins to run to leaf, my grandpa used to call it. And those would be shoots going off from the vine that just kept trailing out, and all they did is produce leaves. They had no fruit whatsoever. There was no flowers in the spring for them to bud into to produce grapes. The second one is through disease. A blight attaches itself to the plant. And the third one is through old age. They wither and they become dry and useless. The same principle holds true in your Christian walk. And there's a passage of Scripture that backs that up. Let me take you to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says this, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. See, we're talking about believers. We're talking about people who show up at church every Sunday. 
looking as though they're fruitful in their life. Other people looking at them saying, well, that person's in church. They're probably pretty active in the community. Maybe they're being fruitful. And here's the inescapable inference here that's going on. The, these qualities that's referred to in verse 8, these qualities, if they don't abound in us, we can become unfruitful branches on the vine. Not meaning that we're losing our salvation, but that we're being put on the bench. And this is a really severe warning because you were bought at an infinite cost. The blood of the Son of God, the amazing grace has been given to us. And yet, we're capable of falling into a useless state, a vine that produces no fruit whatsoever. So let's be really clear to understand this. The pruning that we're talking about here is to not make you more fit for heaven. That was already done at the moment of your salvation when you trusted in Jesus Christ. The pruning that's taking place here is designed to make us more fruitful. And who does it? God the Father. He's the one personally. He prunes us. And the pruning process is like an affliction of the soul. It can go so deep, it really rips your heart out. And why does it happen, though? To bring us into the obedience of God's Word. I'm going to take you all the way back to the Old Testament, to David, who seemingly, when we look at the Old Testament, we would say King David seemed to go through such trauma in his life, he seemed to constantly be beat up in black and blue because of some of the decisions that he made to wander from God. Well, he wrote this in Psalm 119.67 because he knew what it was to have an affliction of his soul. He says this first in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. God brought that affliction, that pruning into his life. He says this in verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So is it possible for God the Father who loves you very much, even though it hurts to be pruned, to be pruned in love? When my grandfather would go out and prune his vineyard on the second cutting, he no longer cut short of the vine, just cutting away dead branches. In the second cutting, he began to cut into the flesh of the vine in order to remove the small immature clusters and the wild stringer branches that took off. And when it cuts into the living tissue, into the flesh, it's incredibly painful. And that's why James wrote what he did in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is saying, yeah, it hurts. But you should consider it joy because that's God working on your life. So if this pruning process is guided by the handle of the father's knife and he's got that handle in his hand, the piercing, sharp blade at the end of the knife is the word of God. I can back that up from Scripture as well. Go with me to verse 3. Jesus said this to the disciples, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can I, can you, unless you abide in me. You are already clean, even if you don't feel like it this morning. Even if you did some things this week that you're ashamed of. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have put your eternal destiny in his hands, God sees you as clean and nothing can change that. You are holy, hagios in his eyes. 
And many believers forget that. We allow ourselves to be encumbered and burdened down by sin, forgetting that God forgave us and separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what Scripture says. So I want you to do this with me on three. I want you to say, I am clean, because we forget that all the time. So here we go. One, two, three. I am clean. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's the way God sees you, and you need to be reminded of that. And yes, we can be encumbered with the things of the world. But that's why Jesus started out by saying, you're already clean in verse 3. Why? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. This is how we know this. Because God used his word in, his, in your life to reveal himself to you if you are a believer. Look with me at this description on the screen at Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I have never seen a surgeon's scalpel that sharp. That's an amazingly sharp blade that God wields in His hand, dividing your very thoughts, piercing to your soul, there's no surgeon's tool in the world that can reach that. Now, the warning that we have here is that this is conditional. And Jesus phrases it in verse 4. He says, if you abide in me, you abide in me, and I will remain in you. As it develops in that verse, you see that's an if clause. And it doesn't mean that he removes himself from you. You, you are a believer for eternity. But it means that his action of fruit-bearing in your life can back way, way down when you step into the realms of disobedience. So this word abide is really important because it requires something on your part. It requires vigilance to the degree that every day you're focused on this issue because Jesus says you can't produce anything unless you remain or abide in me. And this internal growth that's going on within you of the Holy Spirit working through you, pulsating within your life, is a result of your desire to seek righteousness with your God. But as you allow yourself to be encumbered with sin, that righteousness factor decreases a little, de decreases a little bit. And God's activity decreases in your life. So Jesus says, unless you abide in me, I can't continue to work through you. And here's a danger, church. Many Christians complain of being barren fruit-wise, of having no fruit whatsoever on their branch. They can't point to anything in their life and say, I don't know that I've ever produced any fruit in my life. But they stop short of tracing the barrenness to its source. And I'm going to tell you what the source is. Because if you want to see the fruit of God working through your life, you want to know what's the source of stopping it. Well, our first part is to remain. It's the word meno, or to abide. What does it mean to abide? Now, if you went to one of my Bible college professors and said, can you give me a scholastic definition for abide? They'd say something like this, to keep in fellowship with Christ so that he can work through us to produce fruit. Well, that sounds very scholarly, okay? But I want, I want the street-level definition. What does it mean in my life? How do I get involved in this thing called abiding? Well, I put it in your notes this morning, and you'll see it up on the screen as well. It's on the right-hand side of your notes down towards the bottom. But here's what it means to involve yourself in the abiding in Christ. First of all, staying in the Word of God on a daily basis. I know it sounds simple, but that's what it is. You're staying in the Word of God. Whether it's two minutes at the beginning of the day or two minutes at the end of the day or five or 10 or 15, whatever you can do, staying in the Word of God. 
Second one, the confession of sin in your life so that nothing hinders your walk. And I'm not talking about coming to your pastor and confessing your sin. I'm talking about you in a personal relationship with your heavenly Father, who is your high priest, Lord Jesus Christ, and confessing to him where you feel that you've allowed sin to enter into your life. And number three, it's obeying him. You know what he's called you to do. It's right here in his word in black and white. Those three are pretty basic to abiding in Christ. So let's flesh it out. How can we tell when we're abiding in Christ? Let's look on the screen. It's in your notes as well. When you are abiding in Christ, you produce fruit. All of a sudden, you got little grapes growing on you. You can tell, hey, this is pretty cool. God's producing things through me. You begin to engage in conversations with people about God things. You start feeling that sense of fruit clustering around you. Oh, we'll flesh that out in just a minute. But number two, you experience the Father's pruning because Jesus said, you will be pruned. If you're a branch, he's going to prune you because he wants you to produce a better crop. Number three, a believer abiding in Christ has his prayers answered. The book of James chapter 4 says that a person who's living in sin, actively ignoring God in their life, cannot expect to have their prayers answered by God. It also says that in the Old Testament as well. It's very consistent in Scripture. Why should God respond to him, to someone who's rejecting him and living in disobedience? And number five, or number four, a person abiding in Christ is going to experience a deeper love for Christ and for those other believers around them. And the fifth one, we're going to see that in just a minute. He experiences joy. And we're not talking about happiness, which is circumstantial. We're talking about true joy that comes from God. And here's the truth. It is not automatic. It is not something that just happens. Abiding must be cultivated. It demands worship. It demands prayer, meditation on God's word. It demands sacrifice. And it results in joy in your life. So here's the danger I talked about. Many Christians would look at their life and say, I don't see any fruit. I've been looking at my life for a long time. I wish there was fruit, but there isn't. And they fail to trace the barrenness to the source. Here's the source. A wimpy walk with Jesus Christ. A meager walk with the Savior. Because they're not abiding daily. Their faith is not active. Now understand we're talking about two really important distinctions here. It's one thing for Christ to be in us as believers. It's another thing completely for us to abide in him. One is completely a matter of his grace and our eternal salvation in Christ, but the other is a matter of our responsibility to be diligent about abiding in him. So one is perpetual, the other one can be interrupted based on our activity. This is where it really starts rolling along. Verse 5 here, if you follow along with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you know what's going on there? It's a clarification of position. Now, when we were in Africa back in uh, January, the um, missions team that went, um, there was a a little phrase that kind of attached itself to our activities throughout the course of the day. And 
Steve Whalen, who was leading the missions team, had various activities that he wanted to accomplish and he had an agenda each day, things that he spelled out for us that he wanted to see done. And commonly, these guys who were on the trip, being very independent individuals, would have a response mechanism for him because when Steve would give us directives, more than often, one individual would turn around and say, you're not the boss of me. Well, it was always done in fun, understand, okay? Because Steve, in fact, was the boss on that job. Because of that missions project, there were things that had to be done. But just in fun, our response was, you're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. Well, they had taken a week away from work to go and serve in Africa. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's clarifying who the boss is. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's not the other way around. So we don't get to tell the vine what to do. The vine says, I want to make it very clear. I'm the vine, you're the branches. So you're going to abide in me. It's a clarification of position. Well, what does it look like to have fruit in your life? If you're a branch and you've got these little clusters growing off from you, this analogy that he's using here, what does fruit look like? Well, let's talk about the overarching picture first. You grew up in church, you're really familiar with this. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you grew up in church, it just kind of rolls off your tongue. You said it right along with me. You're very familiar with this. It's a distinctive mark of those through whom his life flows. You know what it is when you read Scripture to know what the fruit of the Spirit is. But let's break it down. How do we get this on the street level? First of all, here's one good example. Praise. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Let me show you Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So when you come in here and Michael begins to lead you through worship, you're producing fruit even when you don't feel like it, church. Why? Because he's worthy of the praise that you give him. You know, in the first service just stared back at me this way too, okay? He's worthy of the praise that you give him, right? Absolutely, all right? So it's fruit when you come in here, whether you feel like it or not, whether it's 9, 15, or 11, you come to the Saturday night service, you may be checking out mentally. But something about that music playing, and you begin to sing along, and by the time you get to the, the song, God, draw me closer to you, there's fruit growing on you. Scripture says that's the praise of your lips, and he receives it that way. So there's fruit to point to. Here's the second one. The sacrificial love of meeting others' needs. Let me show you on Romans 15, 28, and I'll explain it in just a minute. Paul said this, Therefore, when I have finished this, I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. I will go on by way of you to Spain. What was going on? Paul had gone to one church. He was trying to raise resources financially for another church in a distant region. He was going to go through Spain to get to them. And what he's saying is this offering, this finances that you're giving, it's fruit. It's measurable fruit. You're sacrificing to give to the work of God. So when you're supporting missionaries here at New Hope, when you're supporting the work of the church, you're producing fruit. That's the way God sees it. These are tangible expressions of the fruits of the Spirit. Here's a third one. Holy, righteous, God-honoring behavior in your life is fruit. That's the way that God sees it. Let me show you a couple verses to back that up. First of all, Matthew 3.8. This is fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 13.23. The fruit produced by the good soil of a transformed life. 
It goes on through all the way down to Hebrews 12, 11, The peaceful fruit of righteousness. We're talking about someone who's living a righteous life before God. And God sees that as fruit in their life because it nourishes other people around you when you live in a righteous way. There's a fourth one. There's many in Scripture, but I'm just going to give you four this morning. The Bible also defines the leading of souls into the kingdom as fruit. Now, you may not personally sit down with someone and pray with them that they would receive Christ, but you might have been a seed planter. You might have been the initial individual to start the conversation. You might have been at work when somebody brought up the issue of God and Jesus and you respond to the conversation in a Christ-honoring way and you cause that person to begin thinking. You're planting seeds. Now, you may go all the way to the extreme of leading someone to Christ. And that is producing fruit. Let me show you an example of that from Romans 1.13. Paul said this, Often have I planned to come to you so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. You're talking about leading people to Christ in that setting. But Jesus gives us a warning. We get to the very end of this passage of these last few verses that we've just looked at, and he says, apart from me, you can't do it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Why make this statement right here at this point? Because of the word that he uses, and it's the word charis. I want you to see the definition for it beside itself, by itself, without. It literally means to be severed. So what he's doing here is he's enforcing our need to note everything that he's just said. You're severed from me, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing on your own. I want you to see this the way it's rendered in the Greek language. You see that on the screen? Severed from me, as opposed to apart from me. Why is that so significant? Because I guarantee you, if we took a poll this morning, most in church would say, I accept that. I acknowledge this in an overarching way, that if I'm apart from God, I can't do anything. But we fail to apply it to the details of our life. And Jesus didn't say, you can't do most things without me. He said, you can do nothing without me. And how does that play out in your life? Because we know we can't do the important things without Christ. But how many little things do you attempt to do in the midst of your day? How many conversations do you enter into with someone in your social circle? How many times do you try to negotiate things within your professional occupation? How many times do you try and manipulate conversations? And Jesus says, you can't do anything apart from me if you want it to produce fruit. No wonder we fail. Without me, you can do nothing. It's not possible. Now notice the Lord didn't say, without you, I can't do anything. He didn't, he didn't say that, did he? He said, without me, you can do nothing. It's not the other way around. And Satan constantly tries to distract us on that one. Now, as we begin to wrap up this morning, let's take a look at what he meant by this burning of the non-abiding branches, those who are not abiding in him. This is a pretty important detail to know, and you can take it out with you as you leave this morning. When he says, they gather them and they cast them into the fire, what's the meaning going on here of being burned? Well, first of all, it's interpreted in several different ways. Here's the first one. It's not very popular, but I just thought I'd throw it out there for you. Not going to see it on the screen. The burned branches are Christians who have lost their salvation, okay? That's not my position. 
That's something that some individuals teach, but I want you to be clear. There's some people who think that, but that totally contradicts Scripture. That is not consistent with God's Word. So here's a second position. The burned branches represent Christians who lose their eternal rewards. Meaning, when you get to heaven, you get things because of your work on earth. But Scripture talks about some of our works on earth producing wood, hay, and stubble, meaning burned up in the fire for no good in eternity. Well, that's another view of it. And here's the third one. The burned branches refer to people who, like Judas, appeared to be a branch in the vine, but really were never part of the vine. I'm going to give you a fourth position, which is my personal position. Wherever you land on whichever of those three that I just referred to, here's the position that I take on this fourth one. I believe, and this is a really intense warning for us, that believers are in danger of being put on the bench when we live in an unrighteous, ungodly way that does not reflect Christ-honoring behavior. Now, let me explain this for you because I'm going to read to you a short verse from Matthew 5.13. This is Jesus speaking to Christians, to believers. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under by the foot of men. That parallel verse very much ties into this one, and here's why. In the first century, there were large salt houses, and these were cylindrically shaped buildings, much like silos that we have today. And these very large buildings, sometimes two and three stories tall, would have their walls completely coated all the way around, as high as an individual could reach on the inside with scaffolding. They coat the walls with up to 12 inches of salt. Inside this building, they would build metal racks, and the keeper of the salt house would take your meat that you would bring to them and stack it on these metal racks. Underneath the racks, they would build an intense fire. When the heat became so intense they couldn't stay in there any longer, they would shut a very large metal door, allowing the heat to intensify, and the salt became a vapor in the air. And the salt would penetrate into the very fibers of the meat, keeping the rot out. But what happened in the process was charring occurred. And the walls, the walls that were completely white now became black from the smoke. And the keeper of the salt house, after the fire went out, would go back in, remove the meat off the racks, and get a really large pole and begin scraping down the walls, pulling all the charring down and revealing the bright white that's underneath again. And the unusable salt that was on the floor, he would now scoop up with a shovel and throw it out into the streets where it would be trampled under by the foot of men. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's giving a very clear reference to them to understand. There's a point when individuals have completely lost their saltiness. They're no longer good for anything and they'd be put on the bench. And this is what we see here in this reference to the vine and the branches. That's my interpretation of understanding this, that either your life is bringing forth fruit to the glory of God the Father or because of neglect. We're in enormous danger of being put on the bench and not being useful to the kingdom at all. Uh, here's where I want to end with you today because this very much wraps up with where we started, which has to do with the fact of prayer is the source of fruit. Fruit is the outcome of prayer. Let's look at this in verse 7. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now that's an incredible promise from Jesus himself. You ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So this presupposes three conditions. And here's the three conditions. First of all, the prayer must be offered in his name. We've seen that over the last couple weeks. Consistent with the will and the purpose of God. Number two, the promise is only to those who abide in Christ. God does not obligate himself to answer the prayers and respond to the individuals who are unbelieving or living in disobedience against him. That is consistent with Scripture. And number three, the final condition is this. Christ's words must abide in the person making the request. And when Jesus says, my words abide in you, the, the Greek word there is rima, his literal utterances, the things that he had to say. Words that are so lodged in our heart and our mind, it's a natural outflow of who we are. So picture this. Almighty God with a blank check saying, ask whatever you will, but if it's in my name and it's my purpose, I'm going to sign that check. But you better make sure it's in keeping with my purposes and with my will if you're abiding in me. We find that in 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That means this, church. Whatever we ask will not be done unless our will is subordinated to the will of God. So we'll ask ourselves this question as a church this morning. Why is there so little power in prayer? And let this sink really deep because a lot of people feel this. Talk to individuals who say, I've been praying for months about this issue, some cases years, and I, I feel no activity, no response. So why is there so little power in prayer? Because in the case of some individuals' lives, there is so little close communion with Christ. They're not abiding in Christ, and therefore, they pray in vain. Because Jesus said, I'll hear you and I'll respond to you if you abide in me. So consider this not from Mark, all right? Consider this as an appeal from God himself. He would not have said it in his word here if he didn't care. And he wants you to know that. The fruit being produced in your life is Christ-like character. What do we think of when we think of Christ? Someone in obedience to God the Father, who's full of grace, and his character exudes to the degree that it covers us so that someone can say to us, Man, you look like Jesus. I see Jesus in you because you exude with the characteristics of Christ in your life. That's who God listens to. So this is where we're going to end this morning with verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So when he says these things in verse 10, he's referring to everything that happened in the first 10 verses. All these things that he just said to them. David learned as the king of Israel what it meant to be disobedient to God and walk away from him when he began sleeping with another woman and having a relationship outside the bounds of his marriage to the degree that he actually fell on his knees and cried out to God, saying, God, 
Would you bring back the joy that I once knew? Look with me up on the screen. Psalm 51.12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. What's going on there? David was living in disobedience. He was a righteous man who decided to make some unrighteous decisions, and he walked away from God. He didn't say, restore to me my salvation, did he? Because he didn't lose his salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because he knew what it meant to lose the joy. It was gone from his life, and he wanted it back. So the degree by which we enter into this joy is determined by how we daily abide with Christ. And that joy that you'll know is not like the happy, happy, happy based on circumstances, but it's based on your walk with Christ. So in summary, here's what I'm convinced of. The most damaging action that God could take against any one of us would be that our God would leave us alone and let us wander off to our own ways, that he would not carry out the pruning process. That would be the most damaging action, but because he loves you, he prunes and he works to discipline your life. And you know, your father is really, really close when he's holding that vine in his hand and he reaches up for that branch that needs some more pruning. You're really, really close to the Father at that time, and He does it because He loves you. Let me seal that in your hearts by asking God to do that through the power of His Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, I know there are many distractions entering our mind right now. There's, there's text messages and car keys and dinners to go to, but I ask that you would capture our thinking right at this moment. Father, remind us as we take on this week. You prune us because you love us. And you've called us to be constantly abiding in you. We understand what that means now. But now we have the task before us. In the midst of our activities this afternoon and this week, whatever's going to happen, God, root us back in these things that we've learned this morning so that we might be found faithful and we might be those who walk in righteousness. We ask this in the mighty name of the one who saved us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, church.